there was a tremendous amount of connectivity and camaraderie. That was the goal to maintain that throughout. I'm not suggesting that personalities don't sometimes get along. That's bound, you're bound to have, you know, one or two people annoy each other and maybe you don't always see eye to eye, but that's just normal stuff. That's nothing to do with disability or ability. That's just human, you know, just human factor. Um, but what I think is really unique about this team, uh, bear in mind I've worked with a lot, m most of the business teams, if I'm honest, this is a small part of my life, but yeah, we actually would believe, but, um, is the is the, is genuinely the minimum amount of ego, and the fact that everybody knows why they're there, what they're trying to do, and they're all focused on the same end goal, and so they just get along, and they overcome adversity together, and they overcome challenges together, and support each other. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Andy Laparta. My guest today was involved in one of the highlights of a very exciting sporting year in the UK in 2022. He's an inspirational speaker, trainer and coach uh, who has worked with recognisable brands all over the world. He spends a lot of his time working with the National Health Service in the UK, focusing on inspiring people to up their performance, uh, to be better leaders, and to just get a better get better results all around. But that's not the primary reason I've asked him on to the Connected Leadership podcast. Uh, the reason is that sporting achievement that I mentioned before, because I found out towards the end of last year uh, that on the quiet, because he keeps things under you know uh, uh, under the bonnet a, a lot of the time. Steve had been working for I believe the last ten years as the performance coach with the England Wheelchair Rugby League World Cup team or the England Wheelchair Rugby League team and England hosted the World Cup uh, in 2022 and guess who won? The England team. So uh, to find out that such a high-profile success that the whole country really delighted in um, was someone who I've known and, and admired for a long time um, was, was a great feeling anyway. You're always happy for your friends when they succeed. Um, but it also, uh, I'm the, I'm an opportunist straight away. I said, right, Steve, are you going to come onto the podcast? So, uh, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast and congratulations, Steve Head. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to find out all about, uh, this, this success, uh, that you've enjoyed as part of that, uh, that the team behind the team, if you like, for the wheelchair rugby league, uh, team in the World Cup. I, I think, Bear in mind, I look at the stats for the podcast, Steve, and uh, actually most of my listeners come from outside the UK. Um, so we have a fair chunk of UK listeners, but it's really great to see the worldwide spread we have. Uh, and Rugby League is it, its big in some countries, but it's, it doesn't have the global brand that, say, football uh, might do. Uh, and it can be very confusing for people to know that there's not just one type of rugby, but two. So there's Rugby League and Rugby Union. And then, of course, you've got Wheelchair Rugby League and Wheelchair Rugby Union. Um, so I think maybe we can start, if you can just explain exactly the differences between them um, and, and why Rugby League for you. Um, well, the, the reality is um, I'm my background, as far as sport is concerned, was not heavily involved with rugby. Um, and I got involved with the Wheelchair Rugby League team. I'm quite weird in this because I was talking to the players around this, around the, around the World Cup, and I said, my first exposure to rugby league was through wheelchair rugby league. 
most people they're passionate about rugby league and then find out about these other you know developments on the sport. So I came at rugby league directly through wheelchair rugby, wheelchair rugby league, and that's because I just happened to work in a construction company where the general manager called Martin Coyd had been appointed as um, general manager of wheelchair rugby league. He was working in construction. I was helping him with various projects on health and safety. And he loved what I did. And he says, would you help us out? And I said, what do you need? And I, this was 11 years ago, as it happens, um, 2011. And he said, well, basically, we need support to get the team's mindset in the right place. And I think some of us, the few teachers could work. So I came in very much in the dark. All I know about wheelchair rugby league and rugby union, or this union in the league, is never the twins shall meet. So one thing I do know is if I said at any point on this podcast, uh, I work with a wheelchair rugby team, somebody would message me and go, I think you'll find this rugby league, Steve. <laughs> uh, and I have watched both versions. And uh, I think, you know, t- to summarize it in, in terms of the way you watch it, um, this is my probably biased opinion now, but wheelchair rugby league is, for me, is is, is more flowing, uh, I think. Um, that, that may be inappropriate to say that, but that's how it appears when I see it. Um, and, of course, I'm very intimately connected with the, with the team now, so I understand how they go about making it that fast. But I think it's a very fast-paced game. There's not many interruptions in it. If anything, because it's on a 40-yard by 20-yard pitch, um, you could argue that it's faster than the runner's game, you know, because everything happens so condensed and so quickly, so it can turn around in seconds. But it's an exciting sport. My, my, my involvement is purely on performance, not on the technical side. Um, so therefore, I don't really need to understand every nuance of the game, just what helps the players to perform to their best. So, so that raises an interesting question for me because I interviewed Andy Barrow for my book, Just Ask. Andy Barrow, and I don't know if you've come across uh, Andy before because he, he's a speaker on the circuit as well, um, but Andy's a very successful wheelchair rugby union player and was uh, a member of Team GB. I think at, two, at least two, maybe three Olympics, he was part of the team at London 2012 um, he was in the top five in the world in his position at one point. I mean, very successful in that place. But I, I talked to Andy about his entire journey. And, you know, Andy's journey, I would suggest, would probably be a, a, a familiar tale to many of, of the guys that are playing these sports. You know, he suffered a, a really bad injury that's left him wheelchair bound. Uh, in his case, um, paralyzed, I think, from the neck down, but, but certainly much of his body. Um, and he's already had to overcome huge odds, substantial odds to, to travel the world playing elite sport, um, para sport, but para sport is elite sport these days. And, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, so when you're talking about working with these guys on their mindset, is it easier because they've already showed themselves to rise above huge adversity to reach the elite levels? Or does it bring a whole host of different challenges? I think that's an excellent question. I, I've actually opened a lot of events over the last 11 years mm-hmm. talking about my original involvement with the squad. Um, and the very first storyline behind that was Martin came to me, who I mentioned before, Martin Coyd, who you will see on all the footage and all the pictures, and he's right there. He's the guy that's managed the squad brilliantly and kept them together over the past 11 years and longer. Um and the story at the time was, back in 2011, we were actually world champions um, and we'd lost three times to France. France and England are the two best wheelchair rugby league teams in the world. They literally are exceptionally good. And we'd lost three times in a row. And Mark said, can we help us with this fourth game? And I remember getting in the room with about 14, 15 players 
um, with a few of the coaches and support team in the room. And there was this little room in a place called um, Lee in the northwest of England in the sports village. You can imagine tiny, just a little function room. A few chairs. The guys came in wheelchairs. They'd been training, so they were sweaty and, you know, smelling of raw jacks and stuff and deep heat. And uh, Martin just stood up and says, we've lost three times to France. Steve's here to help us uh, win. And the first thing I've reflected back on that was, you can't motivate wheelchair rugby league players for the reason you just mentioned. And I think often when you're talking about motivational speakers, there's a bit of, oh, really, you're going to motivate me. These people have been through a lot. That doesn't say every single person, because something you may or may not know about wheelchair rugby league is that there are able-bodied and able-bodied players. It is, it is seen as the most diverse sport that is in, that is in, is, is in existence because you can have – we don't have a men's team and a women's team. We have a team that includes men and women, able-bodied and disabled. There's certain rules and regulations. One of the rules that I'm familiar with is when you're in play, you have to have at least three disabled people on the pitch at any one time. Um, there are various degrees of disability. You mentioned, um, you know, uh, you mentioned Andy. We've got Jim Simpson, um, who um, in 2009 lost his legs in Afghanistan um, on, a, on a mine um, and landed a bomb. And that was obviously a significant shift in his world massively. And he comes along many years later in the wheelchair rugby league. And clearly you can't turn to Jim Simpson, Simo, as he's affectionately going to go, come on, son. He goes, really, I really want to come on, right? I, I don't need you to tell me to do that. But, but we've also got Wayne uh, and our team who was um, sitting at traffic lights on a motorcycle and the car hit him at 70 miles an hour and broke his spine many years ago. And the, these players, these human beings, they still have issues, as you would expect, under pressure to stay calm, to stay focused, to stay balanced, because you're just as likely to get angry and emotional when things don't go your way, just because you're highly motivated to win which arguably is the same in business. When I talk to salespeople, very few salespeople don't want to hit their targets. You know, they want to be successful. They want to hit their, their outcomes for the year, financially and strategically or whatever. But quite often the market conditions go against them, the circumstances go against them, and they lose their um, focus or they get distracted or they get angry or whatever. And so it's being able to stay focused on the job in hand and in the case of a sport, which I think is slightly simpler in a way, because the rules and the regulations and the, you know, for, let's say the complexity of business, you've got certain parameters to work within, certain rules to work within. But um, you, within the short time, 80 minutes in the case of a match of, of wheelchair rugby league, you know, you, you've got to be on it all the time. And there's only five players at any one time on each team. And if one player loses attention focus for 60 seconds, that's 20% of your team not playing. So that, so I think there's an intensity to it in the fact that it's such a micro-focus of time. So my job was never about motivating, I don't think, though I think you do inspire and make people feel, I can do this. Um, but there's a difference between somebody being motivated to want to do something and truly believing that they can, and then having methodologies to stay focused in the game when they're actually playing. So you're, you're absolutely spot on with your question in that. I think that many of the players in our team, the last thing in the world they need is to be told, you really got to want this because they absolutely want it. The question is when it gets after five years of prep, which this particular squad had and COVID in the way and the one year delay, how do you make sure that in all these tiny little moments of 80 minutes, you get it right more than you get it wrong? I guess that would be the best way to sum it up. I'm interested, uh, 
what you said there, Steve, about it being the most diverse sport and you've got able-bodied and disabled uh, participants all playing on the same team. Now, obviously, the core focus of the podcast is is professional rela- relationships and maintaining relationships. Does having that mix lead to any issues on the team or are there potential issues that between you, the team, uh, and by the team here, I'm talking about the support staff as well as uh, the players. Is it something that you've owned from the beginning and, ad- and addressed? Was there never any need to address it? Or is there sometimes a chance that there be, can be conflict between able-bodied and non-able-bodied participants? And how do you handle that? Um, the answer is you have to bear in mind my perspective on this. Before I answer that question, you're going to have a lot of uh, people in the support team, when I say a lot, You've got Mark, who's been there from day one, who's heavily involved at every single training camp, at every single session, coordinating a huge amount. You've got Tom, the coach, who's involved, you know, extensively. You've got John McMullen, who is there at every camp, starts, sets the team up, sets the change rooms up, prepares the arena for the, for the training camps. And I get asked to come in and do certain sessions on certain dates based on what the demands are. Either a match is coming up or they want to just fine-tune a bit of thinking around something. So... My, my response to this question is in that context. Yeah. But what I would say is that what I understand and what I've witnessed, and the one thing that I'm probably very inspired by, is the fact that everybody gets along. Everybody values everybody's contribution. Um, there are certain players that perform brilliantly well and get mentioned a lot, did in the World Cup. Um, I mentioned Jack Brown, for example. He's, he lives in Australia, as it happens, but he's, he's, he's a Brit and he plays for England and he's seen as probably one of the best players in the world in the rugby league, if, if not the best. And he got man of the match a couple of times, but whenever he's interviewed, you can just hear his words. You know, It's always about the rest of the team. It's always about what everybody else has done. So I would say quite brilliantly, I think this is a... And, and I'll tell you more about this if I've got a chance on this podcast about how we acquired how we got down to our values, which I think are quite important and what the process for that was. But the values themselves almost describe how the team think together and how they are. There was a tremendous amount of connectivity and camaraderie. That was the goal to maintain that throughout. I'm not suggesting that personalities don't sometimes get along. That's bound, you're bound to have, you know, one or two people annoy each other and maybe you don't always see eye to eye, but that's just normal stuff. That's nothing to do with disability or ability. That's just human, you know, just human factor. Um, but what I think is really unique about this team, um, bear in mind I've worked with a lot, m- most of the business teams, if I'm honest, this is a small part of my life working yeah. with rugby league, but um, is, the, is, the, is genuinely the minimum amount of ego and the fact that everybody knows why they're there, what they're trying to do, and they're all focused on the same end goal. And so they just get along and they overcome adversity together and they overcome challenges together and they support each other, which was what led to, as the campaign developed, so the the, the team sort of been developed in about about five years ago and then and that you know that's gathering with the players together working out and then eventually you filter down to your final 11 which was the 11 that turned up the world cup um my involvement was probably more around when there was about 19 players in the main squad that doesn't mean other players won't play in the future they just weren't ultimately selected for the finals of the world cup um and then there was there was obviously online training. There was sessions that were in. Then we got to arenas by March of 2021, which is when I first physically met the squad, this this squad. Um, and then by March of last year, February last year, sorry, February of this year, 2022, I got a phone call from Martin saying the team 
want to develop their own values, right? So as opposed to rugby league fraternity values, they want their own wheelchair rugby league values, something that they feel connected to, that they feel passionate about, that will hold them together through this next nine months, 224 days as it was from that point. And, I, and Martin says, I think you're the man for this. Because, of course, I do a lot about this in the corporate world, so it was, it was easy to, to translate the process. So that, that was a quite an important thing. And that really led to um, making sure that any rifts, any differences would be minimised during that nine-month period. That, that, that's probably a way of answering the first part of your yeah. question. The second part would be, how do we get the values? Yeah, well, let, let's come on to that in a moment. Um, I, I think, well, let's come on to that now. Values is something we've talked about on the podcast quite a few times with differing opinions. It's 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 quite a divisive topic. Some people absolutely swear by it, and whereas others think they're a complete waste of of time. My, my personal perspective, and it's not something I work with closely, um, but as an observer, almost is that values are only worth. Uh, only of value if they are um, fully engaged, if the whole workforce is fully engaged with it. And it sounds like what you've said there, where the team have come and said, we want to create our values, you're going to get values that are meaningful. Whereas whereas if, if you, as performance coach, came and said, right, I've written a, group, a set of values for you and you're all going to accept them, uh, I, I think they'd have less mileage. So yeah, talk us through the process. So they came. What what triggered it among the team to cut to to say that, and then what was the process through from there? Well, superficially, I mean, you know, there's there's a huge amount going on in the background, as I said, that I'm not always privy to because I'm not there at every single event. I'm called in when I'm needed, and there was clearly some feeling that between uh, what would be the 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 slogans and the the standards and the values of the rugby league fraternity on, on the biggest scale of things did not feel that it's a bit like what you just said if you come to somebody and say here's some values do you fancy them that's when all the cynicism kicks in right yeah. we know that in organizations if you self we've got a group of values come on you'll see but we're going really the eye roll is consistent in that environment i've seen it many times i get a joke on stage if i mention values to people i go let's talk about values and they go, oh, God. so you get it all the time but martin rang me up and he said this team of players right now, of which there were about 19 at the time, um, want to have a set of uh, principles, call them what you like. We even had a discussion. Should we call them values? Should we even give them that name? Maybe that would be off-putting. Go, oh, really? Because they might have the same cynicism. Bearing in mind, these players all have full-time jobs. Yeah. You know, they're all doing something else for a living. They're not playing. Them. There's no, there's not that much money in real to rugby league, trust me. So they are doing this as an absolute passion and commitment. So maybe that's a clear success factor. Maybe we should just get, get more volunteers in. But anyway, so they are basically, they're seen as elite athletes because we were allowed to train in March of 2021 when you couldn't still fully, you had to be masked up and social distance and very careful how we did it. But we had some special dispensation because we were seen as elite athletes. So, so Martin rings me and he says, they want some value. So I was a bit taken aback myself and I thought, really, they, they want to do this. Great. So this if I tell you briefly how I went about it, yeah. because my, my thing, like you, I thought we need in inclusion. It's no good me saying, well, I've got some great ideas of what your values could be. So I got on Zoom, which was the most efficient way to do it. We got four of the players to join a Zoom meeting on a Monday evening, uh, early in March, and basically brainstorm what would be the best way to do this. I showed them a structure. There is a model. I won't go into the detail of the model, but fundamentally explaining where values fit into the picture. So I, I 
it's, it's from it's an, it's an all about, but I think it resonates very well. That there are four things you need to run a great, a powerful business or a powerful organization. In this case, a powerful team. You need a sense of purpose. You need a set of values, which to me are the standards of behaviors that you all uh, understand and um, comply with or follow or adhere to during a process. So you've got the standard of behaviors, you've got your purpose, you've also got a strategy, and you've got a set of goals and objectives. And I looked at the four players and I said, right, let me show this model. It's an assert, like a yin yang kind of model. And I said, have you got a set of goals and objectives that you follow daily, weekly, monthly to get up to the World Cup? And the answer was, yeah, we've got campaigns, we've got dates, we've got projects, we've got fitness goals, we've got you name it. Have you got a strategy? Is there a plan towards the World Cup? Absolutely. Every one of them understood that. I said, do you know what your purpose is? And within a blink of an eye, is it become the world champions? That, you know, it's crystal clear. It's, it's a bit like an Olympic athlete who go to get a gold. You know, a good friend of mine is Chris Akabusi. You know Chris, right? Yeah. And Chris, you know, when I used to work with Chris years ago, he says, we had this one outcome goal, which was we want gold. You might, on the way, we're going to go for Europeans and Commonwealths and Worlds, but gold Olympic. And, but then I said, so the values bit, which is the fourth element, they're the, they're the behaviors, they're the standards that you set yourselves that if you, if you get those things right, will allow all of that other stuff to happen. You will deliver your goals, deliver on your strategy, and, you hope, and all being well, you'll achieve the ultimate, ultimate outcome. And so I once I started that, I said, so what would the values be? And then you get down to well, what does that mean? Well, it's what's important to you. And then we brainstormed it. And I've got the original, I'll get all the flip charts from this, which were incredibly messy. So if this was a visual, you wouldn't understand them anyway. But, uh, and I've got all the, and I said, right. So we ended up with about 20 odd values between four players. Bear in mind the four players is also very important. I think this is quite critical, actually. The four players that were involved, it was Simpson, Jim Simpson, who is, I, I think, highly respected in the team. You know, he's been through a lot in his life and he comes with a huge amount of wisdom. He's one of these people, for me, that when you're in a meeting, some people speak a lot. I'm probably one of them, but it's not always necessarily the best stuff, but I just say a lot. Um, and every now and then, a James Simpson turns up who says very little, but when he speaks, everybody goes, that, that, was, that had value. And he was that, he's that kind of person within the team, a huge influence in terms of behaviors and standards. And so James was there. Uh, we had Tom, who was the captain, main captain of the team. We had Joe, who has been in the team for a long time. So he's got, he's got, you know, uh, respect, probably maybe not a vice captain, but seen as that level, sort of high level in the team. And you've also got a guy called Lewis King, who in fact got one of the key tries in the final. He's an amazing player, been around a long time. So we've got four players. We've also got many other new players. They've only just joined the squad in the last year or so. So we've got these four players that I would say are, the, are highly respected, have huge credibility, who were the four players on Zoom. They then, the following, every Monday, we'd meet again and go through and filter down and agree what these values would mean if they were being lived, what the, what the behaviours were. And then we agreed there'd be a launch. So we got down to five. We didn't agree at the beginning there would be I just said my guideline was says you pretty don't, you don't need many more than six or seven. If you get bigger than that, it will just be this crazy list, no one understand what it means. So we got it down to five. Um and then the launch of the values was on the 9th of April in Leeds at a training camp, which was also some camaraderie stuff, connectivity stuff was going on there in fitness and training. And they asked me initially, well, you could do this because your job is speaking for a living, so you could stand there and go, here's the values, guys. And the agreement was that probably wouldn't be the right thing because, again, I, I don't have to 
go on a wheelchair and sit in a pitch and have some guy coming at me at 20 kilometers an hour. So I don't believe I have the credibility to stand there. These are your values that are going to make the difference. It's better if it comes from James and it comes from Lewis and it comes from Tom and it comes from Joe. So they basically, I introduced it and said, this is the process we went through. Pretty much what I've said to you, I'm going to hand over to your colleagues now. And then they shared them with some context. This is what this means to us. And then this was a little idea I had, but I like this idea and it, it's something they agreed with. Was I, I, It's quite funny, actually. If you could see this, this would make you laugh, right? So there's an A1 flip chart, which I wrote the five values on at the start, so we'd refer to them and say that they're on that board so you can point to them. Um, they all made their presentations of about two, three minutes each, very punchy. This is the values, what it means. This is what we're, gonna, we're about. And there's all this nodding because there's a team of 19 in the room. There's me and 19 players. That's it yeah. in the room, not nobody else. And then at the end of it, I'd said it'd be a good idea if uh, everybody just came up. I didn't see this at the time. I asked them to and get a get a marker, um, a sharpie, and just sign the board. It's like a symbolic gesture to I'm in, right? Bear in mind, 19 people, right? So it's a small number of people. It's not like you've got to get 1.3 million people in the NHS signing a board. It's really simple. But they used, then they got the board laminated and carried it to every training camp between now and every event they did up to the World Cup. And I happened to see it once because Martin sent me a photograph. He said, we're at training camp today. Uh, and he said, you did this. And it was the board. I didn't really do it. I just facilitated it. But, and it was funny because it's so messy. <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't, we didn't get it reprinted. We didn't get some special artist in, you know, to come and design it all. It's literally a board with my, to be fair, I work very hard at my handbrake. <laughs> and it's just got the five bullets on it. And it says, and the signature, it said, this is what drives everything we do. And those five words drove everything to the end. And if you listen to the media commentary during all of the matches from the Copper Box in London to Sheffield to Manchester, every interview um, talked about connectivity. Talk, you, you could just, it, was, it was the flavour that ran through this, the connectedness of the team, that everybody had each other's backs. It was that, that was the flavour of it. And even to the point where when we won, that is the thing that's come through it all. It's this team were just unbreakable. They were just so connected. Even the fact that some players didn't get selected for the final 11, but turned up and watched every game from the sidelines, I, I think says a huge amount about what went on in those early months that led to the success that they had. I think I think that's wonderful, incredibly powerful, Steve, and a, a, a great case study of, of values as they should be determined and, and applied as well. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. I'm going to ask you in a moment just to talk us through the journey to to the World Cup itself and and, and the tournament. Um, but before I do, there was just one thing that that sort of I noticed in, in, in the story that you shared that I just want to dig into a little bit more deeply. And you said that it was just 19 players plus you in the room. 
Was it a conscious decision to not have the managers of the team and other support staff in the room? Is there a power in running a session like that? And, and I know that, okay, we're talking about the wheelchair rugby league team, but everything that you're talking about, as you've already hinted and not so hinted at um, in the conversation, is very applicable uh, in the corporate space as well. Is there a time when it makes sense for you not to have the leadership in the room? Uh, and is there uh, are there times when it makes sense for leadership to stand back and let the t- the team the group come up with the solutions? Um, the answer is probably yes. Um, I think obviously again it depends on what environment. But in this particular environment, when I got to Leeds that day, um, we as a team that is to say me and the four players who've driven the process. Uh, and bear in mind, they're also talking to their colleagues along the way. We At no point did I say to them, you know, you shouldn't tell anybody what we're doing. You know, it's this big reveal on the day. It, I don't really care if they sat with three of them. It's, oh, we're working on the values. This is where we're at. You know, if, you know, if that's not a problem. On the day when I got there, Martin, again, who was the general manager of the squad, um, Martin and I were similar age, and so we've been around a bit. And Martin wanted it to be just the team in that moment. I mean, even Tom didn't come in. So Tom Coyte, who was very well respected as the as the head coach, um, it wouldn't have been a problem for me if Tom had been there. It wouldn't have been a problem for Martin had been there. It wouldn't have been a problem for anybody to be there. But the doctor, the physio, um, the other scientists who do the stats on the team, there's a sort of, you know, another sub-team in there. Nobody was in the room. It was literally Steve just going. And even to be fair, had it not been for the request of the four players for me to set it up, to, to, to almost facilitate that yeah. moment, it, it, I would have happily said, look, I'll do that and then I'll move out and you just get on with it. Because it was very much about 19 players um, buying into something that they were going to have to live by more than anybody else, right? They, they, so on certain days, I don't have to turn up to an event because I'm not needed. Uh, on certain days, you know, the medic might, might need to be there, the physio might not need to be there, but you can guarantee those 19 players have to turn up every day through rain or shine and pay their own petrol to get where they have to be. And so um, if, I, if I tell you that, in summary to your question, I think it depends on the size of an organisation, the complexity of organisation. But for this particular moment in time, what clearly Martin felt, and Martin made the call, it wasn't my, I have no authority in that sense, but that I want this just to be intimate between you and the team. So it was just the 90 players in the room and it was the very, you know, it was sitting around two or three little tables and a little fun. It wasn't anything flash. This is none of this is high budget stuff. This is very much just sitting around a couple of tables with a couple of protein bars in the corner, uh, you know, and going, right, this is what this is about. Are we up for this? But where you've got a big positive is that they're already there for the right reasons. So you've already got 19 players in the room who absolutely believe in this campaign and want to do it. The question is, what are the standards of behavior along the way to get us there? Whereas I think where the cynicism that you talked about earlier was where people go, oh, values, it's when they're not all bought in at the start. Whereas we've, you know, I'm pushed against an open door here against incredible human beings who are passionate about something, really want to do it well. And I'm just helping them with, you know, some topics and some um, focus on behavior that might, might help them along the way, which, by the way, they came up with, not me. So, yeah, I think in that sense, it was right. Maybe on other things they discussed, it was better to have the management team in the room because, you know, more political stuff had to be discussed, more um, 
more stuff that was more that was more complicated that had more influences involved but this was about the team and the team behaviors and there was even a question asked to me by when so then we all had dinner together and the rest of the um, support team came in and there was a question asked of me you know we need, you know we all need to know about this stuff because we've all got to make sure we reinforce it and I get that you know you don't want anybody who on the on the support team not enforcing the same behaviors my reaction to that was trust me you will know what these standards are these guys will never let this go now every person in this room is bought in but they're not a secret they're all on the board in front of you they're all out there and we're going to have them printed up on boards and stuck in the change rooms and they're going to be everywhere but they don't really need them on a board they don't need them on a board it's in their hearts and souls that's where it comes from it's not something we just came up with on a whim um I, I, what it might be worth telling you while i've got you <laughs> I'm doing this. If, if i tell you i'll tell you what the the nine the five values are and then you'll see the connection and how this came about and I, I'm really passionate about this. I, will, I see them in a lot of companies as well in different shapes and sizes. They're not all that special, but they, it's, they meant a lot to them and how they did it. The very first thing that they came up with was, um, and started on the first session, was celebrate all the wins. And, and my job in the team is being, being very much around positivity and about paying attention to when it goes well, at least as much as when it doesn't, You know, because it's easy to critique. In fact, the next phase following winning the World Cup there will be some work done in the future around what were the contributory factors as an individual within the team that helped, in other words, what helped me if I'm a player. Um, and the second part would be, and what do you think really made a difference as a team? And it would be interesting, that would be an interesting follow-up conversation to have. I wonder what they, looking back, think that was. But Celebrate All the Wins was the first one. The rest are fairly interesting when you look at the words that are used. So selflessness. Um, Sacrifice, connection, ownership, right? They're the four others. That's it. There's five in total. And sacrifice, I was chatting to um, to James Simpson when we'd won the World Cup on the night of the, literally it was the party afterwards. We were sitting chatting and it was amazing. And um, I was chatting somewhere and I said, uh, you know, very emotional and brilliant and uplifting. And he said, you know, last year, when the World Cup was supposed to happen, he was celebrating uh, 10th anniversary. They were going to go to New Zealand. And he had to go home when it was told the World Cup's been postponed, which wasn't until about October last year to this year. We ain't going on an anniversary trip. We aren't doing this. We aren't doing this to his wife. And he said, that's what I mean by sacrifice. That's, that's huge. That's like, you know, everything, wheelchair rugby league World Cup comes first. And that means we're giving up a lot of stuff. And I think, when someone like James articulates that in front of his colleagues in the change rooms, whenever and peppers that in, they're all going, yeah. And it's not saying, I can't believe I have to give up. It's saying, this matters that much. And as a result of that, it, it, every single day there was some experience. I'll give you another one. This is this is brilliant. Do you mind if I just tell you this? No, go, go ahead. But just before you do, Steve, just for the benefit of people listening, um, we're recording this just before Christmas uh, because this is going to go out probably in February. So when Steve's referencing last year, is 2021. Uh, and yeah. this year, 2022, <laughs> the, the the challenges with the early year uh, episodes. But please carry on, Steve. I just wanted to no, clarify sorry. that in case anyone no, was confused. So, so I've been very passionate in organisations over the past uh, 20 odd years, doing my day job, if you like, uh, to get teams to discuss success and to either personally or team or whatever, right, and various settings. And I was privileged on the night before the semi-final which was in November, because the whole World Cup ran from the 3rd to the 18th of November 
to. And I was in the, I was joining them for dinner the night before, and they were doing, you know, every night there's a, they hand the shirts out and who's going to be picked on the team the next day. And I'd been chatting to Tom a few weeks before, and he says, oh, we're, we've introduced this concept um, on the back of the positivity stuff, like sharing good things, and it's called breaking bread. And breaking bread is basically when you are as a team together at your training camps, somebody starts it off, somebody gets up and says, thank you for doing that today. Great that you got the food in and saved me a bit of time, got my wheelchair out, got me set up this morning, saved me 20 minutes. I really appreciate that. So it's this kind of mutual connection, right? And I happened to be there on the, on the dinner, and I'd completely forgotten about the breaking bread thing. I was just sitting having my chicken and my potatoes, sitting with a few of the players. And um, in the room this night, the, the, the physios were there, the scientists were there. The, you know, There was about probably 30 of us, I don't know, 28 of us in the room. And suddenly one of the players stood up and just said, breaking bread. And said something like uh, selflessness, which was the value, and then said, today you did that for me. And pointed at one of the players, really appreciated it, and then sat down. A few seconds later, Wayne, who's got a broken spine, he's in his wheelchair, he goes, um, sacrifice, boom. And he says something. And then Simpson, James Simpson stands up at the, after about four or five of these things and says something. Now, the interesting thing about this was, right, Martin Coyd and Tom, the head coach and the uh, general manager, are sitting at a table. They didn't stand up at the start and say, right, right, everyone, um, breaking bread time. So somebody has to start. Who's going to start? Who's going first? Who's uh, none of that, right? It is, it is with it. That was to me the most part. I thought, isn't that great? Isn't that great that the team understand that it's important to reinforce this at every possible opportunity? You don't wait for the boss to tell you, we have to be nice to each other tonight. We've got to share some good practice. So I've been now, imagine me doing one of my events now on stage, and I go, got to tell you about breaking bread. Because People ain't doing breaking bread at work every day, right? This is habitual in the team. So no wonder we were connected. No wonder people were appreciative of each other. And by the way, it doesn't have to be telling somebody else how good they've been to you. You can actually just stand up and say something. I was proud today. I did a personal best. And we'll get a round of applause. Jim Simpson stood up that night, right? And he said, um, it was 2009, 13 years ago today, that I got smashed up. That's when he lost his legs in Afghanistan and the whole room just scored. Now, they all know that. They all know James. They all know his background. They know what he's been through. But the, the fact that he just stood up and said it and he says, there's not a room in the world I'd rather be in than in this room tonight with you. Now, th that's vulnerability. It's openness. If we could bring more of that stuff into the business world where people just stood up and just shared stuff with each other and told each other. And I, I don't want to sound, sound too soppy, but before I did this with you today, I, I was thinking a lot about this stuff. and. What might be relevant to say and you, you haven't asked the question you probably won't even ask the question but i think if you were to ask these players um what was one of the factors that that was significant to them it would be love right and and i've never said that about any team i've worked with i've never thought oh there's a lot of love in the room you might say it as a joke and a light-hearted you know and it sounds i mean i'm a geordie bloke northeast working class fella so to sit here and go Love helped us win the World Cup. It sounds right. And maybe they wouldn't even agree. I don't know. I've not asked that. Lads, but I think there was a tremendous amount. That I, I truly believe that win or lose the World Cup, as it turned out, we won. 
that there are lifelong relationships, pretty much person for person in that team, that will never, ever, never diminish. All because, all because of, of what, they, what they achieved in that World Cup. And not what they achieved, but the, the way in which they went about approaching that World Cup for the past five years or however long they were in that squad. I, that would be my view. So, I, I, think, I don't know if it's pretty powerful. It, it's incredibly powerful stuff. Uh, and, I, and I know that there'll be a lot of people listening to this where that will really resonate. Uh, the, the challenge is, uh, and I'm not going to ask you this now because I think that the answers are peppered throughout everything that you've said so far on, in this conversation, is, is how do you recreate that within your team in, in the workplace, within the people that you work with? Um, and, and I do think it's possible. I have seen teams that work closely together that clearly do have a strong bond who stay in touch even when people move on. It's doable. It's got to be something that people aspire to and want to achieve. And what strikes me from everything that you've said is that it was player-led, that it was player-driven, and that they wanted this. And you started out by talking about motivating people who don't need motivation. Um, they're motivating themselves there, aren't they? Yeah. And the other thing it's important for me to say in the context of this is that, and I sort of said it at the start when you asked me the first question about Rugby League, Rugby Union, I, I am a very, very small part of this. Mm. You know, there are people I watch in awe. When I turn up in a training camp in Sheffield on a miserable morning, and last year with masks on and tests as we go in, and there's a whole area that's set up and it's massive, and they've, got, they've hired this hall for the day whatever cost with minimal budget and there's a guy called John McMullen um, who is heavily involved with rugby league he's, he's passionate about it and he's obviously very very good friends with Martin and I had the chance to talk to John more during the, this World Cup than I did at any of the sessions he was busy he's the guy that's there with a the van offloading all the equipment and the gear he's the guy making sure the change rooms are set up he's the guy that's like, I, I just look at him and think, you're like their dad. You know, you're, you're, you're there for every need, never a grumble, never a complaint. Way before anybody's there, he's there. Way after, he's there. And I just think that John is, is like everything that it's about. It's that total commitment, not for the money, just for the love of the sport. And I think people appreciate that. They appreciate that you turn up and that you give a little bit for them. I didn't get paid to do any work. It's not like, you know, I don't want a round of applause for that, but, you know, it, you want to do it. It's something, oh, I've been asked to do this. What a privilege. This is amazing to get to do this. But my role is literally the 1%. I would even go as far as say a 0.1%. It's this tiny little role that is asked to do little things that might just add value while you've got the Johns of the world who are there day in, day out, giving it everything to make sure that logistically and materialistically this team have everything taken care of. And you've got Martin, who's um, dealing with the rugby league and the politics and everything that goes on, and all these people doing tremendous things to make sure that we had a wheelchair rugby league team that were there for people like me to turn up and do a little bit of fine-tuning with. Do you know what I mean? So I would never want anybody to listen to me and think, Oh, Steve, how did you know all this? I, I'm, the reason why I didn't make a big deal of it, ever really, on any discussions, I've, when I've met you at meetings many times, I don't sit there and talk about it because it's it's just it's this tiny little – I said to my wife all the time, you know, what I did was help them get a few values together. All I did was turn up and do a, you know, a bit of an upbeat session on mindset and handling pressure and staying calm under pressure or whatever. 
which is my bread and butter stuff. I didn't turn up there and suddenly make this squad amazing. They were already amazing. You know, I just turned up and did a bit of fine tuning and only when I was asked. So it would be awful if anybody ever listened to me and thought, oh, Steve, you know, you've, you're taking credit for something that I did a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. And uh, so many other people made this thing work. I think I... I I think I would say to you, Steve, I don't think anyone listening to this would think that for the first, for a moment. Um, And and I said at the beginning that you kept this very much on the quiet. It was actually a mutual friend of ours that posted it on Facebook and not not you. And you're not a big social media user anyway. Um, But it wasn't through you that I originally heard about it. It was was, uh, secondhand. Um, But I would say not to do what you had a disservice because... At that level of sport, it can be that 1%, that 1.5% that is the difference between success and failure. You need that other 98.5% in there, but that alone may not be enough to, to, to win in the end. So everyone plays their, plays their part, including you. Uh, let me ask you one last question. I, we won't have time for you to go through the whole journey, but talk to us about the World Cup final uh, and, um, and what it was like for the team, for you, to when you when the team won and uh, celebrating it as well after all of that hard work, what did it mean and what came next? It was. Um, I think I wrote a few messages after because I was. I did put something out on Twitter. A few proud moments. I recycle a lot of things, and I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know what people say on Facebook. But um, it was without question one of the highlights in my my career. My professional, even though as I've just said, I, I know I played a small part. I know it wasn't. I've done big events. I've worked with clients over and over again, and the, the, to watch these people achieve and, and knowing how much it meant to them, and knowing how much commitment and sacrifice and all the stuff that had gone in, and all the voluntary work and all the support team around it, I just couldn't help but feel very privileged to be standing on the sidelines watching this team achieve. Um, so much, and Martin, who I have known for many years now, probably 15 years, who I've mentioned several times on this podcast, um, to watch him and his son Tom, so Martin Coyle, his son Tom is the head coach, um, and Joe plays on the team, his other son, so to watch the three of them together to see the elation, and almost like with Martin, I felt for the the last couple of years he's been holding his breath, (laughs) <laughs> just going, waiting for, you know, because you cannot celebrate. There's always that, you know, when you win a final or a semi-final or a quarter-final, hang on, we've still got to do this. You know, we've still got to cross the line. And to do it under the circumstances, there was um, one of the things that I, I was very passionate about was staying calm under pressure and teaching strategies, you know, whether that be Steve Peters' chimp paradox stuff or spins on that concept, but making sure they understood there's going to be challenges, you've got to stay calm. And that worked very well. And there was some very challenging decisions, referee decisions, um, which pushed us a lot. And I was really proud to watch the players stay calm. But the minute that that whistle goes and you know you've won, it's it's complete elation. It's the fact that you know you you feel part of something, watching all these people you know, so delighted with tears of joy. Um, then, of course, there was the post-party, um, the post-final uh, party, which is where I got to... Um, Sitting and my wife Abby came up. Um, Abby's not into wheelchair rugby at all, uh, but has been to many of the matches with me. And 
some of our anniversaries. We've spent the training camp, so she's been delighted uh, to be involved in that. And so I wanted Abby to be there to enjoy it. And even though Abby's not a sports person at all, it was the fact that it was it was bigger than that. It was. Mo- I've even said to people who've never watched sport and aren't really into sport, just have a look at the best. There's about a three and a half minute BBC highlights reel because you can see what, what it means to these people and how much work goes into it. And um, and yeah, so it was elating. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a highlight of my career in the sense that I felt I had at least played a part in it and I felt connected to everyone in the room or in the arena. Um, and just seeing how happy everyone is afterwards. And also even talking to Tom yesterday, bear in mind, I appreciate when this has been recorded to 2022, it's Sports Personality of the Year being on TV tonight and how excited they are to be invited to that and how it's still going on a month later, right? Because it was the 18th of November when the final was played and we won. And I just said, you know, milk it for everything it's worth because for the last 11 years, I've stood in front of audience and says, anybody ever watch wheelchair rugby league? And not a hand in the room goes up. Yeah. And now at least you get 10% of the room going, yeah, wow, what do you think? And I go, it's brutal, it's this, it's that. But it's, it's just wonderful to see a group of people work so closely together who, who really care about each other a lot and understand how much they've all given to get to where they be and then get the result. And, of course, it's in our favour, so we're bound to be delighted. And if I can be involved in the next campaign, which will be three years down the line, I'll do anything I can to help. Well, I'm sure they'll be delighted to have you involved as well. Steve, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Uh, congratulations to you and the whole team. Uh, on the success as well and yeah i'll be keeping my eyes open for for the next campaign as well steve great to catch up thanks for joining me on the connected leadership podcast it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me so thanks to to steve for joining me i i, I could just sit back and listen I, I said to steve beforehand I, I i know steve and i said you just talk it's absolutely fine he said you know what you're, you're letting yourself in for but sometimes you have a guess where you just know you let let them flow because there's so much gold that's going to come out and, and I think particularly that when Steve was talking about that journey to setting the values there was so much power in that so much impact in that uh, what he said about the love among the team I thought was incredibly impactful and there's so much that is transferable to, to other scenarios as well so I'm hoping you not only enjoyed that conversation but have taken some incredible value from it some ideas Uh, as well so thank you to Steve for joining me if you've enjoyed that I know I bore you with this every single week please do share it please do tell people about the Connected Leadership Podcast and leave us a review uh, on uh, iTunes Spotify uh, whichever podcast channel you use to listen to this and whatever you do join us again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.